ancestors as kids and how we are all sons of God. If the ladies are not sure what that means, you can go and listen to last week's message to understand a little bit better. And before we get into tonight's message, I just want to do the bridge because obviously there's an argument which Paul is building throughout Romans 8 that he's going to end tonight. So the passage we're skipping over speaks so much into the moment that we're living through. Uh, when you use the word groans, it does sound a little bit strange, but he's, he's speaking about groaning about the brokenness of the world out there. And he's saying, as we look around, like Tabani Latuli shared at the beginning of last week's service, we see so much brokenness in the world, even in our commutes. You know, we see brokenness, evil, sin, injustice, wrong in the world around us. And we groan. And we say, God, why are things this way? And then it's not just out there that we see it, because it's also inside. Inside of us, we groan because we think, why did I do that thing again? Why do I keep struggling with this? What, why is my heart that way? And why is my head that way? Why can I not grow and overcome these sins or temptations or struggles that I've got? We, we groan about the world around us, but we also groan about the world inside of us. And the good news of Romans 8 and of Christianity is that Jesus Christ died for our sins on the cross, that he's redeeming us and making us new, and one day he's going to return, and he is going to make all things new. The world out there, there'll be a new heavens and a new earth, but also the world in here. He, he's at work in us. He's redeeming us. He's making us more and more like himself. But one day we will be fully and finally like him, and those struggles that we groan about will be gone. We, we will be perfect. We will be the way that we should be. And we look forward to that. And the good news of that is that God doesn't give up on what he started. And I, maybe that's for some of you tonight. God finishes what he's begun. Maybe some of you are feeling a little bit guilty now. You're like, oh, I've got seven projects going on back home that I've started that I haven't finished. God isn't like that. What God has begun in the world, what God has begun in you, he wants to take it on to completion. He wants to finish it. Sometimes it's slow. It's a slow process of change and growth. But one day when Jesus returns, one day when we see him face to face, we will be like him. And the struggles and the groaning inside of us will be gone. We're going to go from groans to glory. And that glory that is to be revealed in us is absolutely beautiful. So we look ahead to that with great joy. I just want to say the plans God has for you, the, the purposes God has for your life and for our world, he will bring to completion. He, he will fulfill them. God doesn't give up on you. He's not going to give up on the world. God will finish what he has begun. We can trust him in that. But as we get into our last passage and the last part of the series, I wanted to start with a quote tonight. I'm sure some of you have heard of or read a book by A.W. Tozer before. When I was a new Christian, I read The Pursuit of God, which really set me on fire to seek God, to know God for myself. And then a book called The Knowledge of the Holy, which was about what God is like. And one of the most famous quotes by Tozer is this one. So you might have heard it before. I'm sure I've shared it here before. But he asks, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So kind of as we get into this passage tonight, I want to ask you that. What do you think God is like? What do you think God is like? What, what verbs, what adjectives would you use to describe God? And are they positive or are they negative? Do good thoughts come into your mind when you think about God or not so good thoughts? You know, is God scary or is God loving? Is, is God a good God or is God a God that you're not that fond of, you're wary of. And then secondly, what do you think he thinks of you? 
which is also huge. What do you think God is like? But what do you think he thinks of you? Because those two things, what we really believe about those things in our hearts and our heads, they determine so much about how we live and how we live before God and how we respond to God and how we come into a space like this. And if we've got those things skewed or wrong or broken, it impacts every part of our life. So that's why Tozer says, what we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about you. And these are really simple questions, but they have profound implications in every part of our lives. As we spoke about last week, do you feel more like a son before God or like a slave? Do you feel always fearful that you're not doing enough to keep God happy with you and that you're going to be punished? Or do you feel free before a loving Father in heaven? Which way do you feel? Do you believe God is for you or against you? Do you believe that God loves you, that he likes you, or maybe something else? What do you think God is like, and what do you think God thinks about you? And today's passage out of the end of Romans 8 is one of those passages I wish you could just download into every one of us Matrix style. Just get it, you know? So I've been praying that for each of us this week, that we wouldn't just know it, but that, as Paul prays in Ephesians 1, the eyes of our heart would be open, that we'd catch this, that this would be revelation for us, that we would live in this, because this is one of those passages that I think has such potential to change our lives. So please bear with me as we go through this tonight. Wrestle with this for yourself. Ask God to open your eyes to grab hold of this fully, because this is extraordinary. So let's read Romans 8, 31 to 39. Says, what then shall we say in response to these things? Everything that's been happening in Romans 8, even before that. And Paul responds, he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding or praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's an incredible passage. Guys, please come in. Sorry, I don't want to draw attention to whoever's at the back there. Don't turn around and look. Um, This is an incredible passage. And it starts with a question which is going to kind of ramp into the truth that's going on here. What then shall we say in response to these things? It's like Paul's saying, we've been through Romans 8. Actually, you could tie this back to the beginning of Romans chapter 5 if you want to go back and read all of that. What shall we say about all of these things? And then the next 10 words are almost a summary of everything that's been said so far. So if you were to summarize Romans 8, what we've been preaching about for the last four or five weeks, what would you summarize it as? Because Paul summarizes it this way. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for you, who can be against you? That's his summary. Something I think we could all memorize and should probably preach to ourselves every single day. If God is for us, who can be against us? And I want to ask you again, do you believe that? 
Do you believe God is for you, or do you believe God could be against you? Uh, I said four weeks ago at the beginning of the series that there's something quite amazing about the bookends of Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 and 39. So in verse 1, we've got this line that says, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Hey guys, welcome in. And then at the end of verse 39, we've got this line that says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So in verse 1, we've got no condemnation. In verse 39, we've got no separation. And inside of those two bookends is where Christians live. That's your address. That's where you are. No condemnation. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And here, in verse 31, we read, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's where you live. God is for you. That's what Paul wants us to know and take away from that. So what does this actually look like in our lives? This is a quote from Fleming Rutledge and... She's an Anglican minister. She's written some amazing books. She says, Imagine a person totally committed to your best interests, devoted to seeing you flourish, fighting for you against all enemies, determined to eliminate everything destructive from your life, attentive to every detail of who you are, never thinking of himself at all, but only of you. That is Jesus in relation to us. Isn't that beautiful? That first line, totally committed to your best interests. He is for you. He's for us, which is incredible. He, he's on our side. And I know for some of us, we're like, come on, Grant, this is basic. I've got this. But I think if we're all honest, probably sometimes we believe that, sometimes we don't. Maybe some of us here today, we, we don't believe that at all. You do think God is against you. But if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, this is true of you. So you can put your name here. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but you can almost write this in your Bible. God is for and then insert your name, you know? God is for Grant. God is for Janita. God is for Exo. God is for Mike. God is for Andres. God is for Sven. God is for Krista. God is for you. That's what's going on here in Romans 8 verse 31. God is for us. So who can be against us? And I love that kind of, I don't know, banter of Paul there. God's for us. Who can be against us? It's like he's kind of just throwing it out there. God's a big deal. You know, God is a really big deal. Who can be against God? Because basically he's saying, if God is on our side, then no one can defeat us. And if someone defeats us, it means they've defeated God, which is impossible. That's what he's trying to say there. He's saying, if, if someone defeats us, then they've overcome God. They've killed God. They've taken God out to stop the plan and purpose of God in your life from being fulfilled. Because God is for you, so no one can be against you. God is too powerful. He's too all-knowing for anyone to ever stop the plan and purpose of God in your life. God is for you. God is for you, which is amazing. And then what we, what we see here in Romans 8 is this answer to this question that is inside of us, which causes a lot of anxiety and fear and discomfort and unease. And really the question is this, what can separate me from God's love? What can separate me from God's love? And have I done that thing already? Or has that already happened? Am I separated from God's love now? Is God for me or is he against me already? Where do I stand with God? And maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're asking that question, where do I stand with God? Because it doesn't feel like we're in a good place. Where do I stand with God right now? And Paul begins to build this case. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? 
I think one of the reasons that we doubt God's commitment to us and love for us is that we don't fully grasp the cross. We don't fully see how seriously God takes our sin, and we don't see how much God has given for us at the cross, that, that he gave Jesus, his son for us, that Jesus is the most valuable and beautiful thing in existence, that God gave everything for us, showing how committed he is to you and what he's doing in and through you. If we grasp that, it changes everything for us. And Paul writes and he says, God has proven his commitment to you on the cross. And it almost feels like he's a bit frustrated, like, come on, church in Rome, like, do you not see? Jesus was given. God gave his son. He's committed to you. How can you doubt his commitment? He's given his son for you already. And maybe to illustrate that, I'll use just a bit of a silly story. But imagine Shell and I, I mean, you've heard my daughter crying dada the whole way through worship and through the service so far. So imagine Shell and I decide we're going to take August to Disney World. We're going to Orlando, Florida. We're going to have a big family holiday. It's going to be amazing. Firstly, that's going to be a very expensive trip, you know? So that's going to take us a while to save for, to plan for, to prepare for. And finally, maybe we could get there. I mean, if you think of the price, three people on a plane at the moment, I don't know what it would be, but 15 grand each, 45,000 rand just to get there. Then add accommodation. I guess that's where you can choose, you know, what are we going to do? Are we going fancy? Are we staying at Disney? Are we going to stay at a really small little hotel or motel or whatever it is? That's going to be a couple of thousand bucks. Food's going to be thousands. Transport's going to be thousands. It's going to be a very expensive holiday for us as a family. I actually went on the Disney website and I checked how much a day pass into Disney World is right now. For Shell, August and I to go in for one day, depending on the day, would be somewhere between four and a half and seven and a half grand. So if we're going for a seven-day trip there, it's going to be a lot, guys. It's, it's going to cost. So let's say this is a family holiday that costs way over 100,000 rand. We're all in. We're saving for this. We finally get there. Months of preparation, months of planning. Somehow we get the money. We pay for flights. We book everything, and we head off. We pack our bags. We're driving into Disney, and we're so excited. You know, we're all chanting, Disney, Disney. Shell, literally growing up, had a Minnie Mouse everything. She was a big Minnie fan, so maybe she's chanting Minnie. She's all in. But we've, we've done all of this. We've paid all of this money, and as we drive in, we see the parking lot, and there's a sign outside that says, parking $10. And I just turn to Shell, and I go, it's too much. Like, this is too far now. Like, we've paid all of this money, and now they want 150 rand for parking. Like, that's the most I've, I've never paid more than 20 rand for parking in my life. Now I'm going to pay 150. That's it. We're turning around and going home. What do you think Shell's going to say to me if I say that, you know? She's going to say things I can't say in church. She's going to be furious with me if I say that to her. Because we've spent over 100,000 rand, years planning and building towards this moment. And now, yes, $10 for parking is a lot. But in light of everything else, it's absolutely nothing. Just spend the money, let's go into the park. This is what we've dreamed of. And that's what Paul is wanting us to see here. Because some of us wonder, how far will God go with us, you know? How, how far is too far? You know, wh what is the end of God's grace for us? And after that point, he's done. He's like, that is too much. I'm done with Grant. I'm moving on with my life. And what Paul is saying here in Romans 8.32 is that because God has already made the big purchase on the cross, he's given everything for you and I. He's paid absolutely everything. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't a down payment. It wasn't a deposit on your life. He paid in full for you. 
because God has paid everything up front already, that means when he gets to the parking lot and sees that sign, $10, he doesn't give up and turn around. God is committed to you. He started something in you. He's continuing that. When there's some ups and downs and bumps along the road, God doesn't throw in the towel and say, I'm out, because he's already fully committed. God is committed to working out his salvation in your life, and he's going to take you to the end. He's going to take you to that moment that we spoke about already, that moment of glory, that moment of being with him, that moment of becoming like him fully. God is all in with you. God is all in. So because of that, we don't have to doubt his love and commitment. We never do. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing, we don't have to doubt God's love and commitment because he's already given his own son. So we know he's all in for us and our life. Verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding or praying for us. So we go into this courtroom scene in heaven, and we're the defendant. And Jesus is our lawyer. He's kind of taking care of us. The Father, God the Father is the judge. We've got Satan, the evil one. He's our enemy. He's the prosecuting lawyer. Yes, I'm so sorry. I know I'm doing a complete mess over here got some lawyers in the room it's whenever i do one of these stories i'm like ah, oh, if that's your sphere of influence it's going to be a mess but basically we're in court and satan the evil one is hurling accusations against us and every one of them is true we, we know that true and what happens is we feel the full weight and guilt of what we've done all of those things before the father jesus stands up after every single accusation and he says that has been washed in my blood i've paid the price in full they're forgiven and accusation after accusation comes against us in the courtroom of heaven. And Jesus, after every single one, can say the same, paid in full, washed in my blood, forgiven. And the gavel of God goes down and declares not guilty. Now, the reality is in our life, Satan accuses us. Some of you know that. Maybe some of you at the moment feel the voice of Satan accusing you, lying to you, deceiving you, weighing you down so significantly. Maybe some of you feel accused by people in your life. People are just saying, you're a mess, you did the wrong thing, you, whatever it is. We feel accusation, we feel condemned. The reality is that will come because we're imperfect. We fail, we, we're flawed, we, we mess up, we do the wrong thing again and again and again in this life. That, but despite those charges and accusations and their accuracy, Jesus stands up and says, paid in full, washed in my blood, and the gavel goes down and declares not guilty, and we're free. The judge, the Father in heaven, says you're free. You're free to go. As Romans 8 verse 1 says, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But what I love is that Jesus isn't just our Savior. He's not just our defense attorney. He's also our intercessor. He's also praying for us. And we've spoken about this a few times over the last year. For the last 2,000 years, Jesus has been praying for the church. He's been praying for you and for I. Right now, Jesus is on the right hand of the Father in heaven, praying for you. I found two quotes by these theologians that I just thought were extraordinary. This is Louis Burkhoff. He wrote, It is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our prayer life, that he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers. 
and that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us though we do not notice it. He's praying that our faith may not cease and that we may, may come out victoriously at the end. Jesus is always praying for you. When I was going through this, I thought of that song Waymaker that we've sung here so many times. And if you remember that chorus, it says, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I can't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never st- I'm not going to keep singing. You never stop working. It's the same with prayer. When you can see it, Jesus is praying. Or when you can't see it, when you can't feel it, he never stops praying for you. He's always, right now, Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for your situation. That's Jesus. Robert Murray McShane says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. I want you to know that Jesus is more committed to you than you are to him. Jesus is way more committed to you than you are to him. He's an amazing savior, lawyer, and intercessor. Romans 8 verse 35 and 36 who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And as I was reading that, I, I really wrestled with that. I, I thought, oh, this, you know, it's a small section. We don't need to pay much attention to that. But I think this could be the most relevant part of this passage for us right now. And I say that because the last section we looked at was the courtroom in heaven. You know, with the defendant, all of that action is going on. And basically because of that, because God has said not guilty, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, we don't no- need to stay focused on our sin. We don't need to stay focused on condemnation or accusation or failings or all of those things. We don't need to focus on that because it's, we've been declared not guilty. We don't need to keep feeling those things or feeling that way because Jesus has dealt with it. But I think the reality is many of us who've even been in the church for a long time might know these truths that I'm sharing today, but they haven't sunk down deep. So you know them, but when the accusation comes, when the condemnation comes, when the feelings come, we don't feel these realities. We don't know these realities. We feel what we're experiencing, and we let that shape us more than anything else. So when we feel good, we feel like we're good with God. When we don't feel good, we don't feel like we're good with God. We feel like God's not with us. We feel like God's not for us. We feel separated from the love of God. When we feel good, He's close. When for whatever reason we feel bad, He feels far away. And it feels like we've been separated from Him. But then in verse 35, Paul puts this other list in. He brings up troubles, hardships, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. 2020, 2021, it's all in that list. And he basically says when we face those things, suffering, hardship, whatever is in that list, many of us think that God's judgment is on us, that God's displeased with us, that God is cursing us or punishing us because of something that we've done. And in our minds, we can always find something that we've done to justify going through what we're going through. We can always say, ah, because of that, that's why I'm going through this thing. God is punishing me. Because of these things that he lists here, we feel that God is not near. We're going through hardships, so God's obviously not with us. We're suffering, so God's obviously not for us. God doesn't love us. We're separated from the love of God. 
But we've already learned, you know, the, the hardship and suffering of this world is a result of sin. It doesn't mean that God is unhappy with us when we go through these things. And we've learned from Romans 8, verse 28, that God works all things together for the good, even hard things. God is with us in difficulty. He's working in hardship. He's working things for the good. He's close. He's for us. He's not against us. He is for us even in the hardships that we face. God is with us in all of these things. And I, I want to ask you, can you believe this right now? Despite what you're feeling, can you believe this truth for your life and your situation? See, as the saying goes, life is lived forward, but it's understood backwards. I think probably the last year and a half for most of us haven't made a lot of sense, kind of as Kel was sharing earlier. Gone through the stuff that doesn't make sense. Maybe in a few years' time, we'll look back and say, I see what God was doing. It's so clear now. Right now, we might not be sure. So do we trust Him in this? The fact that we're facing hardship and challenges and difficulty, it doesn't mean that God is not with us and He is not for us because nothing can separate us from the love of God. God's love is with us. He is with us even in all of these things. Kind of like that old Marvin Gaye song that you guys might know. Baby, there ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough, ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you. I'm not going to sing it. I don't know why I did two lyrics tonight because singing would not be good. But it's true. Mountains, rivers, whatever it is, nothing will stop God from coming for us. Nothing will stop him from getting to us. He is with us. His love is with us in all of these things. If you're in Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God. God is for you and God is with you. So let's end with the last few verses. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors, not less than, more than conquerors through him, not through our righteousness or our hard work or our effort. No, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus' work. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sorry, can you leave the scripture up just while we work through this? Paul says he's been convinced. Some of us might need to be convinced of this truth. Over time and through experience, Paul has become convinced of what he writes here. He believes it to be true. My hope is that we would all believe this to be true too. And he lays this out, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in these bullet points. And the first thing he says is, whether you're alive or dead, nothing can separate you from the love, the love of God. Whether you're feeling healthy or sick, whether you're living or whether you've died, you know, whether you've got a pulse or not, nothing can separate you from the love of God. What about angels or, angels or rulers or powers? Now, you might be a little bit superstitious here tonight, and that's your question. It's like, well, Grant, what about this? You know? And he says, no, none of those things, whether they're natural or supernatural forces, you know, whether it's politicians, presidents, mayors, kings, whether it's angels, demons, principalities, or powers, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What about the present or the future? I love this because God is omniscient. He knows everything. And God says to us here, I know everything about the current moment. And there is nothing right now that can separate you from the love of God. And I know everything that's going to happen in the future. And I know that there never will be anything that can separate you from my love. And by the way, I'm all powerful. So even if something was starting to happen that could separate you, I would stop it because I'm more powerful than that. 
nothing can separate us. What about height or depth? I love the geography. Paul's really going about as broadly as he can. And he says, no, it doesn't matter how far you run. It doesn't matter how, how far you try to get away from God. You could go to the edge of the universe about as far away as you can get. Even there, God will chase after you and find you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. What about going deeper into darkness? You think, Grant, actually, what I'm choosing to do, I'm choosing to go deeper into sin, deeper into evil. I know someone who's gone so far into darkness, they're so far away from the light. No, nothing can separate you from the love of God if you're in Christ. Nothing. And he ends and says, no created thing. And I love that, that God is the creator. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before that, there was God. Father, Son, and Spirit in this perfect relationship, just very content in himself. And God is the uncreated one who created everything that exists. So he says, listen, everything that exists, I know because I made it. Nothing is made that I don't know about. And he goes, I know that there is nothing that exists that can separate you from my love. Absolutely nothing. God knows it all. He, he's making sure you know. If you've got like a little asterisk or a little, I don't know, fine print there going, what about this thing? God says, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you from my love because God is for us. And we see here that God has bound himself to us with an unbreakable love. He's bound to you. If you are in Christ, God is bound to you and he will not give up on you. It sounds a lot like marriage vows. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. My daughter's really stoked about that. She's giggling. Really strong Christian out there on the grass, you know. But these are like marriage vows. You know, obviously it's a little bit different. We would say for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. But God's already said, even in death, we won't be parted from the love of God. In fact, in death, what happens is we go more fully into the presence and love and reality of God for all time. So it's almost like God is making these vows with us. I covenant to you. I commit to you. Despite what you do, I am for you for all time. And that's where I want to end at Harbor City. Would you believe this? God is for you, and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Can the band come up? We're, we're going to end with a song together, which is really about these truths that we're singing, or that we've listened to tonight. So if you want to stay seated, you can. If you want to stand and sing along with the band, you can stand now. But I think this is a time to almost meditate on what Paul has been saying to us in Romans 8. To ask God to reveal this to you more deeply, to live in this, to live into this. And as the band sings this, maybe you just need to be encouraged by these words. Maybe you just need to let the Spirit kind of minister them to you and just wash over you with this truth. But He is for you. God is for you. He is for you. Nothing can separate you from his love. Let's sing together.
Thank you.